as a parent to an autistic child, the, the battle that I face is almost exclusively internally because of this. I don't know how my child will end up. The reality is, with all my kids, I don't, I don't know how it will turn out. Sure. But with a neurotypical child, you have a general idea. Attention Stocks, the weekly podcast where we talk to influencers, celebrities, politicians, and everyday people to show that we all have unique perspectives, and that's a great thing. I'm your host, Ryan Malinowski, and today we've got Jimmy Cardoza with us. How you doing, Jimmy? Good, man. Awesome. Glad to see you. Tell me about yourself, Jimmy. What do you want to know? I mean... Everything. Everything. Well... Where are you from? Well... Where do you live? Yeah, What's so... What's look like? I was, I'm originally from South Florida, um, currently living in Houston, Texas, which right now is the COVID-19 hotspot for the country. <laughs> Depending on who you talk to. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. Uh, just doing life, whatever that means nowadays. I've got three kids, um, wife, just working. Trying to trying to stay alive. Cool. Yeah. What do you, what do you do for a living? I am a project manager for a geophysical surveying company. Um, but obviously, you and I go back. We've known each other for about what? 10, 11 years, maybe twelve. Yeah, twelve years. Oh, seven, right? Because we first Something met. Like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I've been living in Texas since oh seven. Moved to the moved moved here from Florida. And just kind of stuck around. Uh, I'm a musician originally. Uh, Study music. Been playing the guitar for about, gosh, what am I, 31? 25, 27 years now. Okay. Um, yeah. So, day job. Do my music on the side. Try to do as much studio stuff as I can. That's... That's basically it, man. You live in Texas, but you're from Florida. Yeah. What was it like growing up in Florida? So, Florida's kind of an interesting conundrum because, like, you know, we all see the the whole, like, Florida man thing. Like, all the Florida man memes everywhere. And it's partially true, but, like, the weird thing about South Florida is that there's... It's mostly filled with like northerners, like people who, who like moved down from Canada or people who are originally from like New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania. And so like yeah, while I grew up in like, you know, subtropical South Florida near Miami, it was it kind of feels like I was just almost like like I was raised by basically like basically a bunch of New Yorkers. Like my family are from upstate New York well technically upstate like 30 minutes north of New York City and I don't know it's like I don't know Florida's weird like, I, I don't have any desire to go back like all my family's in Texas now and so like Florida is kind of just like this thing where you know old people go to die or <laughs> or 
where young people go to try and like make it in Miami and then realize that, hey, Florida kind of sucks. It's as hot as balls all year round and it's never, I don't know. <laughs> gotcha. It's Florida, like just a state. But you can say the same thing about Texas, you know. One of the weird things about living in Texas for as long as I have so far is that it's like, it's hard to leave. Like, I know I have friends who live in other states, and maybe it's like the whole like, if when you become a Texan type thing, it's like a part. It becomes a part of your identity. It's actually hard to envision life elsewhere. Like I, I've had dreams and ambitions of like you know moving to Colorado or California or whatever, and um, the hardest part is like thinking like, oh, what would I do if I didn't live in Texas? You know. It's a it's it's weird and but I feel like every people every person who lives here has lived here for a long time kind of understands like once you settle down in Texas it's harder to leave than it is than it is to come honestly so kind of segueing onto the ideology thing this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before we started recording where it's like people are so bought into their ideology that it becomes who they are and, and I get it but do people grow like I don't believe the same things now that I believed 10 years ago. Right. And I, don't, uh, I, I don't think you should. Like, like it's funny, man. Especially about politics. I don't believe the same. Yeah. Well, it's like, um, dude, you know what's funny? During the 16 election, when it was Clinton, Clinton versus Trump. Is that dude, who was in the 16 election? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I forgot. Yeah, I know. It's like, but Hillary said something like something along those lines during one of the debates where she was like, they brought up something irrelevant from 15 years ago, 20, 30 years ago. And she's like, look, like we all change. We all have beliefs now that we didn't have then and vice versa. Like, and we have to be okay with that. And that's, that's one of the weird things about living in today's kind of socio-political climate where it's like, if you believed anything that is remotely off kilter when you were 1920, when you were a vocal 18, 19, 20 year old, the that can come back and kill you. And that's not, I don't think that should be the case anymore. Like, you have to be willing to understand that maybe you believed something years ago that isn't true, admit it, and move forward. It's well, kind of it's yeah. kind of like it's kind of like the on the topic of race. Like everyone is so afraid to admit that maybe they have a little bit of racist behavior. And that doesn't mean that you are a KKK member or that you're a whatever. It doesn't mean that just because, you know, you might say to yourself, like, okay, I'll give you an example. Like, growing up in Florida, it's pretty diverse, right? Right. But, what am I trying to say? So, okay, growing up in that type of climate, you don't, you, you're not so, you, you don't see race, right? And that's kind of the the one of the buzz phrases right now, where it's like, oh, I don't I don't see race. Well, you're you're obviously well, maybe you should see race because if you if you saw it, then you'd understand that that the the black struggle is like this or whatever. I understand that, but just because I had a potentially divisive racist thought when I was 15 or when I was 12 or maybe I was walking down the street and a black dude in a hoodie walked by and I got to the other side of the street because I was afraid like just because I did that x many years ago doesn't mean that that defines me and what we're stuck in is this this belief system that says that if you believe anything that is divisive at some point in your life that defines you for the rest of your life and that's bullshit 
It's like you have to be willing to say, hey, I, I used to do this and that's not, and but that doesn't define me who I am now, you know? It's a, it's a, and I feel really strongly about that because I, because right now with, especially with, with, with race, race topics, if you, so on the progressive side, if, if you're not 100% aligned with this belief system, then you're the enemy. If you're, if you, if you believe, or if you're the, on the opposite side, then you're, you're now the enemy of the other one. Like I, I, I to like a lot of my conservative friends, if I say something like, if I say black lives matter, all of a sudden to like a lot of my ultra conservative friends, they think that I'm now this ultra progressive, liberal, whatever, you know, I, I, I am now their enemy. Or if I say something, if I try to dig deeper into a story and try to find the facts of something, and then all of a sudden I am the enemy to the other person. It's like being in the middle is a weird place because you really don't have anyone who you can side with, which maybe it's good because at the end of the day, it, it's, it's all tribalism. Like it's, it's this liberal tribe versus this conservative tribe. And if you're in the middle where you're like, dude, everyone matters. Like we love everyone and we hate the state. <laughs> maybe it's a weird place to be. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting because like, and, and I see the behavior on both sides and really sure, I what, do as well. what needs to happen is like we need to pursue the ability to understand. And that goes back to my, my idea earlier of how like we've made an enemy of anyone else who believes differently than us. Right. And when you make the enemy of someone else who believes differently than you, then, you know, your innate instinct is to obliterate the enemy. That's why they like no one like or not no one but like few people who are on the fringes or, or who are super bought into a far left or far far right ideology even want to have discussion because all they're trying to do is defeat the other person. It's like right. but if you pursue wisdom and if you pr- pursue understanding and if you and if you pursue knowledge then you're both better out because here's the thing like there's good sides to a far left ideology there's good sides to a far right there's good sides to being in the middle it's like if you, if you want a better and more equal world you have to admit that like they have a good thing going they have a good thing going how can we make make both happen you know well so we may disagree a little bit here I, I, th- I think I agree with you. It's very much an us versus them mentality, right? You get you get put on your team, or you choose your team rather, right? And then and then you just you're an evangelist for it. Yeah. Um, where I don't know if I agree is I don't I don't think for everything I, maybe for some things, but I don't think for everything you can say all right. You've got a good thing going on over here. For sure. You've got a good thing going on over here. Let's do both of those things because. There's many times where both of those things are at odds with each other. Yeah, you know, and there's always tension to be had in any relationship. But if you but if you can pursue understanding, then at the very least, that person isn't your enemy. Sure, you know, like like I, I'm of I'm I'm of the belief that the people in power in the political world are not actually at enemies with each other. I think that it's all a boys' club, a girls' club, with people who are likely on the same power team. But need need to develop people underneath them who think that they're they're the enemies, so that they can stay in power. That's why you have lifelong politicians. Like like you can't tell me that these people actually hate each other. Some of them do. I'm sure they do. But like people that have been in politics for 56 years, they likely don't hate the other person nearly as much as we might want to think they actually do. Sure. 
it's a club. It's a club. It's a power club. And one thing that I've said a lot over the past few months is that, like, dude, corrupt power always begets corrupt power. Whether that's in the government, whether that's in a corporation, whether that's in churches, you know, like people in the church world like to talk about like big churches who have like family members who work there. It's like, well, like, like we all know how that's probably going to go go down. If you have a mega church with 10,000 people, which is more common down here than probably in PA or other places, but yeah. like the nepotism is real and that that corruption is always going to lend itself until that corrupt until that corruption is able to be brought down, you know. Sure. It's exactly what you're talking about. We've got to talk to people with the desire to understand them, who they are, and where they came from. Yeah. In order to be good stewards of, you know, the knowledge and the wisdom that we have. Yeah. So to value people, you have to value their experience, even if their experience is at odds with your ideology. Because, like, I'll, I'll give you an example. So, like, my wife is half black. She was raised by her white dad, who's extremely white, um, and her mom wasn't really a part of the picture. And now, or right now, she she's going. She's kind of embracing the black side of her, which is kind of a little uncomfortable for me. Mostly because, like, it's not really um, uncomfortable is the wrong word. It's, it's, it's a new experience for me because, like, I've, I've only known Ashley. I've never known Ashley who's, like, embracing full-on black culture, realizing that, hey, there's a part of her life that she actually missed, like, entirely in her life because her mom wasn't there. Like, like yeah, she has her blank, her, not blank, her black aunts and her uh, black cousins who she didn't really see a whole ton of. So it's, just, it's an interesting dynamic, and for me... First and foremost, as her husband, secondly, as a white person, it's important for me to 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 see her, to like let her embrace that experience. Like, like she was raised by like white dude from Connecticut. Like, like for all intents and purposes, she's never been embraced or never seen black culture in her life. So, like, I should be supportive of her to embrace that. And all the if ands or buts and weird parts that come about it, like. So right now she's getting very heavily into like uh, Black Lives Matter. I'll say internet activism, all that kind of stuff. Like I'm okay with that because it's like she's she's going in, into this journey where she's seeing a part of herself, seeing the privilege that she was raised in, which is fine. But also trying to understand like, hey, like there's other people in her in her black circle who have who haven't had that same experience. So it's, I'm trying to pursue understanding for her. So it's like, I'm trying to validate her experience so she can understand that, you know, just because she was black girl raised in a white family, that's not the same experience that everyone else has experienced. Gotcha. I mean, I think it's important to obviously be on the same page with your spouse and stuff like that. So, um, yeah. I mean, that's awesome that she's able to start yeah. exploring that. But it's funny because... Th- seeing her go through that has caught, has, I'm realizing that, you know, I I have tendencies too, right? I have tendencies to like, oh, this, this thing makes me a little uncomfortable. Well, why does it make me feel uncomfortable? Is it like a, is, am I uncomfortable because I think that's wrong? Am I uncomfortable because that's unfamiliar? Am I uncomfortable because, oh, that right there triggers something inside of me 
that bothers me that this other person did, you know? And so it's like, I'm trying to pursue understanding for her, pursue understanding for myself. Like, why, like, wh- wh- why does this make me tick? I get, I hundred percent agree with you. We need to talk to people to understand. That's a whole part, um, you know, point of this podcast. Um, but what, what gives me a lot of hesitation getting behind like these things is, you know, to me, I look at it and I say, you know, that's, that's a form of segregation. I feel like both can be right, you know, but which is more memorable, which is the more memorable mantra, which is the better marketing ploy? Black Lives Matter. And so, and so it's like, I, I get both sides, but you know, all lives do matter. But in this case, the thing that most people are, are seeing is that it appears that it is more common that black lives are more at risk for certain things or black lives are more, you know, and we're not talking about in like a grand scale. Cause like, you know, as, as Americans, yes, we have, everyone is, is technically equal, but we all have the same opportunities. Blah, 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 blah. I get it. But the, the, the difficulty there is like, are, are we just going to discredit everyone else's black experience because it doesn't align with the, with the, the stereotype of the all lives matter person. You know what I mean? Where it's like the person who says, like I, one of my coworkers, we had this conversation during the, the, the protests down here. And he was like, oh, you know, like, you know, yeah, yeah, Black Lives Matter, but my life was, wasn't easy as well. It's like, look, no one's saying that your life was easier or, the, or sure. the whatever. Like, sure. no one's saying that. Like, and, and maybe point this out that like your defense actually is saying something about yourself which you should be willing to embrace and change there's always two things going on yeah you know, it kind of corresponds to the left side and the right side of your brain right everybody everybody's more uh disposed to one side or the other yeah um there's the facts and i love facts i love facts and figures i like looking at them and that's how i educate myself yeah and then there's there's the uh you know the experiential side of things now Intent does not determine someone's experience with the interaction. So what I mean by that, police officer could come up to somebody, could come up to me, right? Yeah. I, I, I don't um, generally think that most cops have malicious intent uh, yeah. when, they're, when they're trying to do what they're trying to do. But that being said, I also don't typically fool in 100% all the way cooperate with cops usually. So this is the reason why I have a hard time trusting a lot of police officers. In the neighborhood, you turn in here, and behind that house, there's gonna be a police officer who's hiding behind a bush or a sign, right. just waiting for you to just barely roll past that red stop sign because right. it's the end of the month and he has to give you a ticket. Right. So he can get some type of whatever. That drives me freaking nuts because I'm like, this is why people it's not that they just don't trust you. They don't want to trust you. And it's not saying that, oh, you know, um, my, my friend, oh, but my friend's husband is a cop and he's a good guy. I don't care. If he does that, he's still being a shitty person. And he's still being a part of a shitty team right. with a shitty boss and whatever. It doesn't mean those people are evil. It right. means that there is a system in place, whether or not that cop is instigating it or their boss, or maybe it's a... Maybe it maybe okay so maybe it's the 
an entire thing that's 50, 60, 100, 200 years old or whatever. That thing is still in place where those people are power hungry. And when you give people a little bit of power, they're going to keep going and going and going to try and get more and more power. And I think that's it. For me, it's like... Well, the whole system is designed that way to, yeah. to retain power. Yeah. So that, that, that I, I 100% agree. And I think most people would agree with that, that, you know, that's not a good part of the system. Because uh, they're not meant to serve you. It's And, and unfortunately, you know, like, as much as a capitalist as I am, and I love that system in terms of like creating overall quality and opportunity for everyone when the political world gets into it and realize how much money can be made in taxes and tickets and all that kind of nonsense that's where i'm just done with it like no man like if you if you need to dismantle the system entirely to get away from that let's do it because that's not healthy and that will continue the same um the same evils that we're seeing all across america I've had this thought in the back of my head for a while now that, okay, so you know how um, Amazon is obviously dominating the shopping experience, the yep. online shopping experience. Um, and, you know, brick and mortars are closing, big box stores are closing because, dude, I can just buy that thing on Amazon for 10 bucks cheaper than me going to Best Buy. Right. I get it. What is the way to keep um, a store? or brick and mortar or whatever open. It has to be experience. There's a reason why people still go to concerts instead of just buying music. Sure. Like you're more you're more willing you're more more people are more apt to, to download Spotify, Apple Music, yep. Amazon Music, whatever. Yep. Than they are to buy an album. I mean, and that makes sense. But the music industry is still behind. Well here's here's how you make money as an artist. And even, even though with COVID you can't you have to create an experience for people. people like no, the human, the human being thrives off of experience, no matter what. Whether that experience is, you know, for us as the kids, it would it would have been my, the experience of me and my dad going to the the, uh, the music store or the record store, or whatever, and buying the album. You know, then then that vinyl or that CD becomes the the experience, and you listen to it, yada yada yada. Sure. Musicians and artists have the have the ability to make their thing, their brand, an experience. Stores have the ability to create an experience. Like, I mean, well, think think about Disneyland. Yeah, you don't go to Disneyland to see Mickey and Minnie in outfits. No. If you've ever been there, you know it's probably the best vacation you will ever have. Funny about Disney is um, a few years ago, Ashley and I went to um, did a California trip. So okay. we uh, we. And what we've noticed is when we take vacations just to us together, we like to do a few different things. So, like, we flew into L.A. We, uh, the first day we got there, the so the first day we traveled, the second day we were there, we went to Disneyland. We okay. stayed at a hotel in Anaheim and went there for the day, and that was awesome. Then the next four days, we went to Sequoia National Park, and we just camped, we hiked, that whole thing. And then the last day of the trip, we went down to Venice and we sat at the beach and we just hung out and did that whole thing. I, I was, dude, you, you guys, actually, I was so adamantly opposed to going to Disneyland because I was raised in South Florida and you could go to Disney World and whatever. Right. I thought it was going to be so lame. And we, I loved it. I loved it because, first of all, without kids, Disneyland is so much more enjoyable. With kids, it's really stressful. Yeah. It's a lot more expensive. And you're waiting, and if you're in Florida in the summertime, it's hot as balls, and it sucks. It's Florida sucks. I was just saying, like, Disney's... 
my perspective on Disney changed when we went there without kids. Without like kids. for the longest time, she was trying to get me to go take the girls to Disney World. I'm like, I don't want to do that because <laughs> honestly, man, vacations with kids are just rough, especially with us when we have toddlers. Sure. Being a parent to three toddlers is very difficult. It's easily one of the more difficult things I've done in life. Let's talk about that. You have three kids. Yeah. So How old are you? I am 31. 31. 31. Um, I have three children, Ellis, Emery, and Aaron. Six, four, and three in a few weeks. Um, yeah, it's, it's tiring. <laughs> they wake you up at... I was up at six this morning on a Saturday, um, which is fine. I don't really mind that. But um, it's just go, go, go all the time, like 24-7, especially when they, yeah, toddlers just want to play. And then when they have each other, it's not always fun and games. It's like, hey, quit pulling your sister's hair. Seriously, quit. Just stop it. Go do anything else. Like, literally go outside. Go on the swing. Whatever. Just get out of here. Or if I'm like, I work from home. I have a home office. If I get home early... And I still have clients calling and my kids are knocking on my door. I'm like, girls, go do anything. Just go away. It's a <laughs> it's a weird dynamic. On the flip side though, we had kids relatively young. So like I have I have like my future to look forward to in terms of like when my kids are adults, I'll be in like my late forties. So that's kinda cool, I guess, as opposed right. to But what I find interesting about that is that I have friends who maybe, uh, you know, married couples who had either don't have kids who are my age or a little older than I am. And uh, they're living in a quality of life that I, I want. But I know that my quality of life will actually be a little bit better later. And one of the things I've, I've told my friends, well, my, my um, married but with no kids friends, is that, like, I, I have the opportunity to make a great life for myself and my family now and know that when I'm in my mid forties or late forties and they're gone, my quality of life can be better than it's ever been. Cause I'll be at my, at my peak earning potential. Hopefully if I keep taking care of myself, my peak health, all that kind of stuff. And it's like, but you know, when you don't have something like when I'm, when I'm, you know, not making good money, but I, but I don't have any kids. It's always like, oh, that grass is greener. So it's, it's, it's constantly this battle of like, jealousy might be the right word. But I don't know. It's not quite jealousy. It's more just like, man, I wish I could sleep in. Yeah. Man, I wish I could like just go out with my wife. Like these are all these little things that you kind of take for granted before, before you have family afterwards, you just realize you didn't, you, you, don't have anymore. I don't know. As a parent to an autistic child, the the battle that I face is almost exclusively internally because of this. I don't know how my child will end up. The reality is, with all my kids, I don't I don't know how they will turn out. Sure. But with a neurotypical child, you have a general idea. On top of that, growing up in the kind of culture that we did in the 90s and whatnot, it is very easy to 
you, your fear basically becomes that your child will interact with you at that age, you know? And so like, for lack of a better term, the concern that I have for my, my daughter Ellis is like, are people going to make fun of her for being retarded is my deepest fear that she's actually going to be quote retarded, you know, like there's, there's a big depth to that, that as a parent that you don't quite, that you don't quite realize until you're confronted with it. That's like, Hey, my child is going to be whoever she's going to be. The thing that I've had to kind of deal with in myself is, is knowing that like, man, like I I have this fear of, of what she might experience but that fear is mostly based on my presuppositions of who people like her are, you know, has less to do with the person that she is and more to do with man. Like, was I a kid who made fun of uh, special needs people? Right. Do I equate the special needs classroom? as just a bunch of kids, a bunch, bunch of retard kids, you know? And obviously, you know, we don't use that word in our house because it's derogatory, but raising a special needs child attention because like they're special and not just like in the special needs whatever like they're very unique and they're awesome and they, they have these abilities that other kids don't like my daughter is ultra empathetic with 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 people's emotions and I'll give you an example we watched the movie Frozen because we have girls they watch Frozen she gets almost unconsolably sad have you watched Frozen? So, uh, Prince Hans, okay. first one, the, the bad prince guy, when he first shows up in the movies, because now she knows that he's a bad guy, she gets almost uncontrollably, inconsolable, sad, based on the feelings that she knows that the other characters are going to experience. To the point where we can't even watch Frozen anymore, because like, we, have to, we have to take it off all our devices removed from our, our Amazon account, all that kind of stuff. Because like when she gets in that mood week, like it's hours before she'll get, she'll get back to quote normal or, or can bring herself down. And, um, right. With, with autism. Yeah. The way I understand it, the highs are higher and the lows are lower. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, but also on the flip side, it's like, well, you don't want to just kind of keep your kid in this false state of happiness for forever. So, and part of it too is because she's nonverbal, it's, it's just harder to know that, but anytime and, and kind of compound that with having girls too, it's a little different too, because like one of the things down here you see a lot is if I tell people that I have three girls, the stereotype of the dad with the shotgun, yada, 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 like in boys coming down is I just want to roll my eyes in the back of my head. Cause I'm like, bro. You say that because you were a dick when you were 16. You say that because you, you say that because you don't want your daughters to experience who you were when you were, uh, 18 years old and dude, and I get it, but you can raise your, your daughters to be just as strong, just as equal, just as, just as dominant of a personality as you are. Okay. And you have the chance to raise them up to be strong individuals who are going to change the world instead of raising passive people who are going to be afraid of walking down the street by themselves, you know? There's this kind of um, social media influencer thing right now where influencers are like adopting kids from China. Oh, really? And it's just kind of a... It's so cringy. Because they're not doing it to 
you know, because they will, they, they're not doing it from like a missional standpoint or like they're like, you know, there's a need and they want to fill it. A lot of times, like there, there's a story that came out of this family's influencer family who, um, adopted this little boy from China. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember how old he was when they adopted him, you know, baby. And then over the past few years, they realized, okay, well, this kid has autism and he's pretty severely autistic. So they actually rehoused him. Wow. Yeah, and it's like it was a big thing, and they, you know, they made a big emotional video on it, and it's it's so cringy because like, you can't just do that. I have an autistic child. I can't just do that, and shame on you for because a child doesn't fit your brand, you're willing to just give him up, and I'm, and hopefully he goes to a good family, sure, but you had a chance, an opportunity to better yourself. And become the best person you can. But because it doesn't fit your freaking social media brand, you're willing to just send that kid off to somewhere else. It's, that's so vile to me. Like, don't get me wrong, like, having an autistic child is not easy. It's not always hard. In fact, it's it's very hard a lot of times. But, ah, man, that that, that speaks to me on such a, a bad level. Like... And I know that's like, that's the worst of the worst, right? So it's, or maybe the worst of the worst is someone who adopts and then they kill them, which it was another story that happened last year. Oh, wow. Uh, anyway, we don't need to go into that. <laughs> family's interesting. Like, I, I love my family. I'm, I'm tired. And I'm like, my, it's like the only hope that I have is that, okay, I won't be tired when I'm like 40 something, <laughs> you know? And so it's like, that's kind of why it's like, dude, invest in yourself now. Like, like, I always find it so weird when, when I find people who are like my age or similar who like don't take care of their bodies. I'm like, bro, like, what are you doing? Like, you won't, you won't be like that forever. Like, take care of yourself. Like, this is your temple. If you're a believer and you're like, hey, well, my temple is, you know, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Then, bro, take care of it. Like, love yourself. Be active. Like, find hobbies that are active and, and increase your heart health, increase your brain health, increase your overall quality of life because if you have a family later you want to give them that same thing too do you have something to say then consider being on the show go to contentioustalks.com slash guest and apply today that's contentioustalks.com slash guest to apply now back to the show awesome well thanks for the conversation so far jimmy uh next what we're rolling into is everyone's favorite part of the podcast it's called the tough 12 all right there is three categories, four questions in each category. For all of us who can do basic math, that means there's 12 questions, which is why it's called the Tough 12. Got it. So, first category, sir, is politics. Okay. All right? So, politics. First question, what is a fair society? A fair society. So, in, in some sense, I feel like... Fair, okay, the statement, a fair society. A fair society is kind of this, like, ideal. This idealistic vision of a, of a version of utopia, right? Which, to me, is never actually attainable, but you can work towards it. Okay. That being said, a fair society... Fair, man. 
have a hard time answering these questions because I want to dig deep into what the actual meaning of the statement or whatever actually is. Well, again, this this is your opinion, man. So, no, I know, I know, I know. Um, a fair society is a place where if you're given a chance to grow and you intentionally don't grow, that should be looked down upon. I know there's a ton of pitfalls in that, but that, that's kind of where, like my instinct goes initially and where I relationships and friendships that I have where it's like if it's not going anywhere I kind of don't want to be a part of it you know that's kind of where I go to in terms of fairness I'm about, you know I guess currently it could a fair society would mean a place where black people don't feel like the police are not on their side and black, where black people don't feel like they're, like they're being hunted which you could argue if that's the case or not based on whatever facts I get it but if people feel that way then there, there's something to be said about it a fair society probably a place where um, where we're all viewed as humans and not as man woman gay straight trans black Indian whatever but in the same breath, it's kind of hard to say where it's like, you know, we're, we're dealing with centuries upon centuries, millennia, millennia of, of world experience where people are bringing to the table their own experience. So my view of fair society might look different than the rest of the world. Right on. Well, second question here, Jimmy, what is the number one issue facing uh, humanity? Um, I mentioned it a few times earlier. To me, the, the number one issue facing humanity is making your opponent the enemy in whatever, in anything that you do. Because there's a difference between having an opponent. You know, if I'm on a team, a sports team doing something, and my opponent is doing the same thing, we're both trying to win, but he's not my enemy, per se. In the political world, the enemy of the right is the left, right? In the sexual world, the enemy of the the uh, LGBTQ agenda is the straight person or whatever. So, if we view our the opposing worldview as the enemy, I think I don't know. I think that that's that that's that right there can stem. A whole slew of issues in the world. But if we can cease to view each other as the enemies and each other's as partners or as equals, even if we oppose each other, we can then we can pursue understanding of each other's view. So less vilifying. Yeah. Right on. Do politics matter, Jimmy, and why? Politics don't matter to me. But it doesn't mean that they don't affect other people. So in, in a sense, if the state has less power, then politics don't matter at all. Because it's just the state and they're powerless. In America, at least. Where, you know, we're, we're supposed to be... The government should work for us. Or the, the political system should work on behalf of us. But currently, it's not. That's why you have people that have such a high view of the pres of, of the presidential office, whether or not you care about the current president or past presidents or whatnot, 
we view the the president as a form of a supreme leader, even though it's not how America on paper actually is supposed to be. The government is supposed to serve the people, and we lead the country. So yeah. So they don't. Uh, so politics doesn't matter to you personally, but. Politics don't matter to me, but it doesn't mean that other people's experience of the political system is is less important. It's not like people's other people's experience and perspectives on on the political system is just as valid, even if it doesn't actually matter to me. So I guess I should care about it, but it's like you know I, I care about politics in terms of getting rid of its power and getting rid of the political power that's current. But, you know, my natural tendency is to say that it doesn't matter because they're just, whoever's in charge is just a pawn to um, lobbyists and other world organizations or corporations or whatnot. So what role should government play then? I mean, honestly, like, granted, this is my ideology speaking. I don't. In, an, in my ideal world, the government shouldn't have really any say, and the community that you're a part of should have should be able to equip you. Right now, it, it feels like the government is there to to fill the gap and fill the void of certain things, which is kind of admirable, I guess. But the hard part about that is that you can't trust them. You can't trust the government to spend efficiently. So why would you want to give them more tax dollars? You can't trust the government to ensure that you're going to get your unemployment check because of this, that, and whatever. It's like, well, maybe it, maybe it, it shouldn't exist at all. And maybe people in the world can be better stewards of each other rather than a powerful entity like the government. So pretty hands-off, then. Yeah. Be ideal. I mean, I'm, I'm not an idealist. I'm not an idealist, so it's... <laughs> well, you just answer the question from an ideal perspective. True. But whether or not I believe it's possible is probably a different story, right? Well, sure. <laughs> sure. Possibility and actuality are usually two different things. Yeah. That's uh, kind of the hard thing, too, because, like, I, I'm not an idealist, but I'm still relatively optimistic about the future and how it can be, you know? Awesome. Well, that was politic questions. Handle them without breaking a sweat. Okay. Um, next up is philosophy. So, first question in philosophy, what is truth? You know, my initial instinct wants to say that truth is fact. But I'm, I'm not so certain about that. I mean... Because, like, there's something to be said about... It's kind of like what we talked about earlier, where it's like... If someone says that their experience is this, but you have data to suggest the other one, to suggest otherwise, does that make their experience less valid? Is their experience less true because it doesn't support the facts and data that you have in front of you? You know. Um, yeah. I don't know how to. I honestly don't really know how to answer that. In terms of how to, how to define truth. So would you agree that facts and 
experience are both a part of truth? They can be. In what situations would one of those things not be a part of truth, either facts or experience? Mm. I guess, you know, the, the thing I'm going to right now is, is race relations because it's the hot topic right now. Um, me as a white person, I can say, well, my experience has been, I've never been pulled over by a cop and had a gun pulled on me. Right. Sure. But I can have, I can have 15 black friends to say, yes, that's happened to me multiple times before I was 18, you know? So both are true. That doesn't mean that my experience is more valid than theirs. It means that it also doesn't mean that my facts can be like outweigh theirs or vice versa. It's like, Yeah, I don't know. Or maybe the same with um, with uh, with gender. You know, if a a woman her entire life has felt unsafe walking down the street at night, and I've never felt that in my life, does that mean that her experience is less valid or less factual? You know. The fact of her experience says that, hey, she doesn't feel safe when she's walking down the street and guys look at her funny, you know? I could say, oh, well, statistics show blah, 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 blah. That doesn't mean anything. That just means that I'm pulling off numbers when we're dealing with the emotions of a, of a human being who doesn't feel safe, you know? So I think we've been talking about this the whole time, but it, it, to bring it back to the question of truth, yeah. Even if you don't have a definition of it, yeah. um, it sounds like from our conversation, you would agree that there needs to be at least some circle of thought and whatnot where it's common ground for everybody in the society, where, yeah. where, where we agree at least at, on a core level on, on a few things. Um, am, I hear, am I hearing you right through the yeah. conversation? Though? Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's, it's interesting because like... The, the pitfall with saying yes to that is that it, it it sounds like it can change over time, but it might not actually. Like most of us would agree that you shouldn't just go out and like rape someone. Yeah, most of us. Yeah, or you shouldn't just go out and like kill an animal, or you shouldn't just go out and steal something. Like there's there's like a level like maybe it's self respect and self understanding, respect for your, for your for other people, or maybe or maybe it's just the American in me that says hey. Don't destroy what is someone else's or don't take what is someone else's because it's theirs, you know? Next question in philosophy. What do you believe about people's ability to change? I wish we all had the ability to want to change. That's, to me, that's a, that, that's a big deal because you can want to change and want to want to change but never actually do it. And so it's like, yeah, I believe, I believe everyone has the ability to change that whether or not they will is going to be dependent on, you know, are you willing to do what it takes to want to change? You know, Oh, I want to, uh, get in shape. I want to lose weight. I want to become a stronger person. Well, are you willing to put in the, the time and effort it takes to do it? Are you willing to build up the splint to do it? You know, that's, that's a different question entirely. Um, also, you know, I'm viewing change through the positive lens, right? 
but you can also change towards the negative. That's a good point. And is that good? No. Maybe it's not. I mean, I don't know. I'm defining someone's ability to change through the lens of are they willing to want to better themselves? So that, so in that case, yeah, anyone can change. My hope is that it's, it's for the good and for the betterment of themselves and the people around them. But if you have a, um, an innate ability to be super manic about a belief system or methodology at work or whatever, you can change and, and destroy the thing that you've built up or the thing that someone else has built up. So people can change, but it doesn't always mean that it's for the good, for, for the betterment of themselves and the people around them. How do you explain consciousness? consciousness and self-awareness kind of in the, in the same bubble even though like you know like you dream as a, as a result of your consciousness it's like this ability that your brain has to like create a present reality even even if it's fake even if it's, even if it's in your dream state um Yeah, I mean, I would kind of, I think I would initially define consciousness as as who you are apart from your experiences or apart from what makes you react in a certain way. But even then, I mean, it's like, you know, I, I might want to identify with a certain, like, a certain type of consciousness or a certain type of being present in reality, but then something can tick me off and then all of a sudden I'm like not who I want to be. But that still is who, who I am. All that's, all that's inside of me. And but certain things bring it out, you know? I don't know if that makes any sense. Doesn't make sense to you? kind of does but I, I try to pursue understanding of the, of the other person you know which that's probably a part of me that wants to feel agreed even if we disagree but oh you understand what I mean you know next question under philosophy Jimmy what exactly makes you you I believe it's a mixture of of the collection of your experience but also who you want to be so if I was raised a broke guy, never any opportunity in life, never, and have not yet made much of myself in life yet, but there's this thing inside of me that, that wants to grow and be better. Maybe I met a person who inspired me to want to do that. Like, I can still make myself better. I can still pursue a better version of myself than it has ever been before. And that's who I am, you know? So it's a mixture of your collective experience as a whole mixed with who you want who you want to become based on maybe who you've been 
you know, lucky enough to, to meet or spend time with or who you allow yourself to be influenced by or um, yeah so, so it's a mixture of your past self and, and, and your, your future potential self okay I like it just like that then we're through philosophy on to the personal and religion questions what do you believe about God? It's interesting because I come from a Christian background and a reformed Christian background for that matter. But there's this there's still this side of me that that sees like negative aspects in certain belief systems that doesn't want to identify with it, even though I do. So it's like I believe God is a creator, I believe God is good, I believe God is kind. But I also believe that even the worst things that I might think about God, because he's creator, his ultimate intention is still good because he defines what good is. You know, Fortunately, I believe that God is loving, God is kind, God is generous based off of what I've, uh, what I've read about him, what I've read about God through, through scriptures, through the Bible. Yeah. God is a creator. God is God is the uh, the the designer of all things good. The God has created pleasure, and that in that now, like, and that and I guess ultimately, that God has created us to enjoy Him. You know, as a Christian. I feel like there's um, kind of semi-related. There's there's such a focus, in, especially in American evangelical Christianity, to want to focus on getting people saved so they don't go to hell. What is the prize of eternity? What is the prize of eternity? Why do you want to go to heaven? Why do you? Why does someone not want to go to hell? Vice versa. What is, what is the ultimate goal? And if the prize of eternity is Jesus, then, then the goal in eternity is to enjoy God forever. Which means if we're enjoying God, then God is the curator and creator of all things good and pleasurable. God knows what you like. He knows that you prefer the color red over green. He cares about those things. And God actually loves and cares about the things that make you unique because he created you like that. And so... In eternity, I believe in, in an afterlife. I believe in, um, I believe that there's there's a whole lot of good in God to be experienced forever, and I look forward to that. Awesome. What do you think happens after death? Ha! Good, good, good segue. Um, you know, I um, there's a part of me that says that upon death. It's, uh, there's no, there's no more construct of time, time, gravity, consciousness, all that kind of stuff. You are who, who the ultimate inner being of who yourself is. And so part of me thinks that, um, after death is, is what I would define as eternity, which could be communion with God, which can mean a relationship with God and whatever thing God has constructed 
for for us to to enjoy. Um, like I, there's just so I have this thought process that's that says that, um, like heaven could be a separate place, or it could be the creation that God has made initially. So I kind of go back and forth because, like, you know, growing up, I was always taught that there, you know, heaven is a place and heaven comes down to earth. If you read scripture. But now I think I'm, I'm more in the belief that like, like heaven is earth redeemed or eternity is, is God's creation redeemed and, and made perfect again. So I kind of, I, I, I don't really know what life is immediately like after death. I don't really care. Honestly. Um, I don't think that should be the goal of people in terms of like trying to proselytize other people. It's like, like, why would you want to, you know, you know, in the evangelical world, why would you want to like get people saved if there's no concept of like, like God is good, God loves you, and God is like, God is caring, and He's like, and God is, and God has made a place for you because He 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 likes what you like, and He loves what you love, and He created you, and and you can find ultimate joy in Christ in eternity. And you can build that joy on earth. Because, like, I had, this, I had this concept once that was, like, like, like if, if Jesus isn't the prize of eternity, could you be disappointed when you get to heaven? Or if, you know, in eternity? Is there any possibility of you being disappointed because it's not what you imagined? Of course, that's a what-if question, which doesn't, wouldn't actually make any sense. But if it can stir up a, a, uh, a desire to want to know God more and want to know and love God and love Jesus more, then maybe that, maybe that could be a worthwhile endeavor while on earth. All right, next one here, Jimmy. What gives life its meaning? Survival. <laughs> I mean, if you think of it like, yeah, what gives life its meaning? I feel like survival is kind of it. It's like we're in a weird place now to where like we we never have to think about like like doing things so that we don't die but like four or five thousand years ago that would have been it or dude 200 years ago in america in the west like you're literally living to survive like you're hunting food so you don't like not eat and eventually die you're li- you make sure that you build your homestead in a place that has fresh running water so that you don't die <laughs> I feel like there's there's a there's a fundamental thing to that like to survive and live and thrive and not die is like the meaning of life. <laughs> now, in terms of like the religious aspect of it, the meaning of life, I would say it's to to learn how to enjoy enjoy God because God is the ultimate author of pleasure in Him. Um, that's definitely the Calvinist that may speak. Last question of the tough twelve. You've made it. What is love? You know, I would initially say the love is to fill a need, meet a demand without any kind of expectation of return. Like, I love my kids. I make them dinner. I change their diapers, even though I know that they, in that current state, can never do it. But you don't do it to elicit a response back. You just love your kids. And so it's, it's like, it's almost like love is a, is a part it's like a, it's a thing that's inside of you that everyone has that can be taken away 
but you can't like really like you can't get it if that makes any sense to me it's like love is a thing that, that's that's uh that we're kind of born with that can be like that can be stripped stripped out of you but you can't like put it put it into you like initially so is it something you learn over time perhaps yeah it's a possibility you learn how to love you know in terms of actually performing the action or a action a loving action or whatever you know like love would be listening love is is not confronting something that doesn't need to be confronted you know like love for my wife I think right here love for my wife would be that hey she's experiencing a spiritual deconstruction deconstruction or she's experiencing a um, emotional racial experience that she never experienced before even if it's not quote right or it makes me uncomfortable it's lovely for me to 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 see her through it and support her and hopefully maybe not even guide her because like you know, she's her own person and we're all equals so love her through it support her through it if she comes to a point take a left here if she comes to a point to where Maybe, maybe if it gets destructive, maybe that's the point where you step in and say, "Maybe this is this isn't this isn't loving anymore, or this isn't this might not be healthy." So maybe in that case, love is is a uh, has a potential to be a confrontation of something that could be destructive towards 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 what you love or what they love. Maybe they're going through a weird hard time, you know. So I guess I view love mostly as uh, as an action that has no intent to receive back awesome well, that's it man you made it through the tough 12 it's the end of the podcast where uh, where can people find out more about you they can find me on my Instagram Jimmy Jimmy Riggs Jimmy Riggs. Jimmy Riggs. It's uh, mostly a music, guitar, music equipment, gear, recording type of thing. And that's pretty much it. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and taking time out of your day and away from your family. Yeah. Being willing to have a conversation with me. Thank you. Yeah, man. Glad to do it. Awesome. Next week on Contentious Talks. I'm willing to assume you're not a moron. <laughs> and from that, there was a lot of things that changed my, not only perspective, but like actual beliefs, you know? Right. And so, but yeah, it's it's uh, just interesting when you actually take the time to go, okay, let's just assume, I don't, I'm not gonna say like, assume that you're right, assume that maybe you have information, I don't know, but just bare minimum, just assume you're not an idiot. Let's have a regular conversation. There's basically North Carolina, People probably think of one of three things. They think like um, the beach, you know, just sure. the cool East Coast side of things. They think of the mountains. Yep. They think of the big city. But then there's this fourth area, which is like small Podunk, Gastonia area, North Carolina. That's where I'm from. So when most people say North Carolina, they're meaning something different than I mean. But yeah, it was just really cool to, to see, you know, stuff that I wrote that uh, otherwise no one would really read um, but then you know I'd be able to write it and publish it on a on a larger platform and uh, you know get you know thousands of 
people giving feedback and things like that. And, um, you know, just a really cool, like, wow, okay, people care. And it's just interesting to see the things that, you know, you assume everybody's going to be on board with and get backlash from it. And I don't know, just learning a lot of things, forming some interesting relationships, um, having interesting, you know, online conversations, people, I don't know, I feel like I, I say things, I'm like, oh, here's this opinion that I have. And then someone sends you a private message and starts asking about, uh, well, what do you think about this? And I'm like, whoa, whoa. I wasn't like actually trying to like, you know, give you advice. I was just saying my opinions or whatever. And so uh, people actually start taking you serious. That's almost more scary than people passing you off. Hey guys, thank you for listening to this week's episode of Contentious Talks. Did you like the episode? If so, please consider sharing this podcast with your friends and family. To get notified about new episodes, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to connect more, like Contentious Talks on Facebook. To support Contentious Talks and for more content, consider joining the Contentious Collective for as little as $1 a month. To do so, visit ContentiousTalks.com today. Contentious Talks is produced, hosted, filmed, and edited by Ryan Malinowski. Contentious Talks, copyright 2020, all rights reserved.